study. Okay, good morning. Good morning. We made it, huh? We made it inside. Wow. My favorite meme this, this past week, a reflection on Halloween. Maybe some of you saw this. Anyone else feel Halloween was unnecessary this year? I've been wearing a mask and eating candy for seven months now. I don't think I need a day dedicated to it anymore. Yeah. Before I jump into Ecclesia Wide Church, I know that many of you are anxious about, been anxious and about Tuesday, the outcome, and, and also just the fear of uh, potential violence after the election. And I thought it'd be great this morning to take a moment and pray together for that. I've been trying to do this the last couple of times we've met, but it, uh, with everything logistically going on, it's been hard to do. But we're really instructed how to pray, and very insightfully from 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says, first of all, first of all, first thing, church, pray for those who are in authority over you. And of course, Paul was writing this at a very dangerous time for believers. And he said, pray that, that they might lead in such a way that we can lead, that we as believers can lead godly and quiet lives and pursue dignified lives. And then he connects all that to God's heart to, to bring uh, lost people, to bring people outside the kingdom into, into the kingdom, into a relationship, into a connectedness with him. And those prayers are actually translated then into God's will being fulfilled and God's will being completed across the world. So let's pray this morning that, uh, and really to even affirm in our own hearts, this is what God is going to do. And even the outcome of this election will, will serve God's purposes. So let's pray together. Father, you told the church there through the scriptures that the first thing we should pray for is those in authority over us. And we do pray, Father, that the outcome of this particular election would, uh, again, continue to allow us to pursue quiet and godly lives full of dignity, would allow us the opportunity to continue to join with you, Father, in the active communication of this message that God loves the world and sent Jesus the Christ into the world to die for uh, sinful men and women and to redeem them. And Father, we pray that we just affirm this morning, we trust that whatever the outcome of this election, that you will continue to accomplish your will, continue to fulfill your heart. We pray along, we pray with you, Father. We pray alongside of you and entrust this to you. We do pray, Father, as well, that there would be peace in whatever the outcome. Father, help uh, this culture to uh, accept the outcome, and we pray there would be peace and not violence, Lord, following it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We know the church in the United States was experiencing great distress even before COVID, many have given up on the church. And their objections are quite straightforward. I'm done with church. 
Or, I don't really need to go to church. My relationship with God is personal. Or, I've had it with organized religion. Or finally, the church is a man-made invention, not God's idea. Now, it used to be it was non-Christians who said these things, but the really perplexing thing now, it is Christians, ex-committed churchgoers, who are saying these things. Now, there are parts of this that I get. Life is complex. And looked at through skeptical eyes, the church in this past decade has seemed so human, so imperfect, so inconsequential. Scandals, moral failings of well-known pastors, evident hypocrisy damaged the church's already tenuous reputation. In addition is the growing cynicism, the postmodern mind distrust whatever is organized and institutional. Large questions, big questions loom around the future of the church. U.S. News and World Report in July asked this question as churches were closing across the country. They said, will pandemic-related closures hasten the slide of in-person worship? A trend that is some worried about the survival of faith in public life. And while virtual worship does have the potential to expand the church's outreach, by the way, welcome to all of you that are watching online, it has the potential to expand our footprint. We have to ask the question is, will this and other dynamics so reshape the church that in some future day we will not even recognize it? So it seemed to us the right time to ask the question, why church? With so much change, with so much chaos, what is it about the church that must not change? Now, not so much today, but when I first started pastoring in the late 80s and early 90s, one of the constant stream of visitors to our church were new parents. These were moms and dads who had several kids, and they were now fully, in their minds, grown up, and they began to ask the question, or began to say to themselves, it's about time we get the kids back to church. About time we all go back to church. Many parents shared the unspoken hope that the church could act as a moral restraint against the world's most ruinous temptations. So they wandered back to church. Of course, while stressing the importance of the church to their kids, they were never quite sure what benefit it would bring them. Years ago, a Doonesbury cartoon perceptively drew this out. And if you can picture this in block to block, the mother and father are sitting down with their son and saying to him, Alex, honey, mom and I have been talking and we've decided it's time for us to start attending church as a family. Church? Church is boring. Well, we thought you might say that. All kids think that. Didn't you think church was boring when you were a kid? Well, sure, I hated going to church. But church was good for me, so my parents made me stick it out. You may end up hating church too, but you have to come by that feeling honestly. You have to put in your pew time like mom and I did. Oh, but... What if I like it? Like it? What do you mean? And then says mom, we'll cross that bridge when we get there, honey. 
Now, Alistair Begg, who used this cartoon in his sermon, concluded by saying, in other words, there is no possibility of you liking it. Who would ever like this benign, bizarre experience that is encapsulated in our culture, offered up in this certain way, prepackaged? Who or what is the church? Close quote. That really is the question, isn't it? If we're going to answer why church, we have to begin by answering what is the church? And so this morning, we'll try to answer three questions to get us down this pathway. One, what is the church? Two, who is included in the church? And three, whose idea was the church? And then finally, we'll ask the question, what difference does it make? And I'm going to house our answers to this from Ephesians chapter 1. So let's start off, first question, and again, these are in your sermon notes on the app. What is the church? How little we actually reflect on this question. And I wonder how many of you could answer it. The word church is in the New Testament. There are 76 references to it. What does this word mean, church? Well, it's a Greek word. The Greek word is ecclesia. And ecclesia was a very commonly used Greek word in the first century referring to a gathering of those summoned or the meeting of the people. As early as 621 BC, there is something called the Athenian Ecclesia. And someone told me in between services that this word ecclesia is still very commonly used in Greece. But ecclesia goes back in time even beyond that, further, back to the Old Testament itself. When the Old Testament was translated into the Greek called the Septuagint, one Hebrew word is overwhelmingly translated into the Greek word ecclesia. And that was the Hebrew word kahal. Now, most of our English translations translate kahal as congregation or assembly. But in the Old Testament, the word meant more than simply gathering. It was gathering for a definite purpose. It was gathering to listen, to hear a message as if one had been summoned. Now, to be summoned in the Old Testament relates to and causes us to think about being called by God, the concept of being called by God. Many people in the Old Testament were summoned or they were called by God. God's word came to them like Abraham. And there the summoning called Abraham to leave one place and to go to another. A summoning or a call came to Moses, and Moses was called to leave one lifestyle and to pursue another. And so at the outset, we might say that Ecclesia has to do with a group of people called from one place to another, from one lifestyle to another. Now, the multiple references that we'll see in this series to Ecclesia in the New Testament will reinforce this definition. What is the church then? I like this simple definition from an Anglican pastor in New York City. He simply said the local church is a community gathered around Jesus by 
his word. Friends, that is what we are. That is a church. The local church is a community gathered around Jesus by his word. Let's look at the second question. Who is included in the church? Now, put yourself in the shoes of a non-Christian, a secular person in our culture. And you ask the question, who is included in the church? Can you imagine the confusion that they would have if you were to do street interviews and ask random people who is included in the church? You would likely get as many answers as the number of people that you asked. With so many diverse traditions over hundreds of years in American history, the answer has varied from denomination to denomination. And there has been tremendous amount of conflict about this question. Jonathan Edwards is a routinely regarded as colonial America's most famous pastor. Uh, Edwards enrolled at Yale in 1713. It was near his 13th birthday. (laughs) Four years later, he graduated valedictorian in a class of 20. Both church and secular historians comment on his towering intellect and his cultural impact, which still reverberates to this day. Now, some of you who enjoyed Hamilton didn't realize this, but Jonathan Edwards is actually the subject of one of the songs in Hamilton called Wait For It, sung by the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, Aaron Burr. Now, what people don't know about Edwards is the great controversy that saw him booted out of his own local church. In Edwards' congregational church in Northampton, Massachusetts, he was expected to baptize the infants of the families that attended. Now, in this day and age, the baptism of an infant was a very important tradition, a very important occasion for the entire family and community. And townspeople, just by virtue of attending, because everybody attended church, literally everybody attended church, townspeople, by virtue of attending and are joining the church, believed that they were automatically entitled to this tradition. Now imagine the embarrassment of your infant not being baptized if everybody did it. But Edwards had a crisis of faith. He had a problem. Many of the parents coming to Edwards to baptize their infants had no spiritual life. They did not possess a real personal relationship with Christ. They had no spiritual core and their life bore no evident spiritual fruit. They were church attenders. They may have even been church members, but they did not possess a relationship with God. And Edwards argued this and came to the conclusion, this was a critical prerequisite on the part of the parents baptizing their children so that they understood and embraced exactly what they were baptizing their children into. You see, this was the same question we're asking today that Edwards was grappling over. Who is included in the church? And Edwards would argue that the Bible trumps tradition or social conventions. The Bible is more important than tradition. The Bible is more important than the social conventions of what people expect of me. My goodness, he lost his job 
over it. And Edwards believed that if we scraped back all tradition, scraped back all social convention, and if we were, so to speak, bulldozed the house down to its foundation and inspect the foundation, what would we find there? Of course, you and me, we agree with this approach. We believe that the Bible, the scriptures, answer these questions for us. What does the Bible say on this question? The Bible is really clear on who is included in God's church, in God's ecclesia, his called out people. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14 with me. The Apostle Paul wrote to this church and, and, and said, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So at what point were you included in Christ? When were you summoned? When were you called? When you heard the gospel and believed it. At that moment, you received the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit who seals you. The Spirit who assures you that you now belong to God. And as part of what the Spirit does, he places you into the body of Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves are free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. When you believed in the message, you were baptized by the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, this Greek word baptizo means to place into, to immerse, to dip. Uh, when you take your plate this afternoon and wash it, you're, you're baptizing your plate. You're dipping it into the water. You didn't know your dinnerware could be converted, did you? When you are dipped or immersed into baptismal waters, part of what it represents is the Spirit placing you, dipping you, immersing you into the body of Christ. You become a member of Christ's church the moment you believe and receive his spirit. Now, you may think, I want to attend that church, Christ's church. I want him to be my pastor. Where is that church? Well, you can't drive to it. You can't fly to it. It is what we call the invisible or the universal church. It's spiritual, not physical. This church does not have a building or street address. You can't locate it on your GPS. You will not locate it on the web. This universal church is comprised of every true believer. Now, the universal or, car, the universal or invisible church has a corollary in the local and visible church. And there are many, obviously, local, visible churches. Church, we are one such church. 
They are led by human pastors. Sorry about that. You're stuck with us. But again, remember our definition. The local church is a community gathered around Jesus by his word. This is a local church. Linworth Road Church. Visible. So what is the answer to our question then? Who is included in the church? All those who have heard the gospel and believed and have been sealed with the Spirit. Let's go to our third question. Whose idea was the church? Where did the idea of the church come from? We hear people say, this has got to be something that is man-made. I mean, think about it. We see the denominations. We see all these divisions. We see all these imperfections. We see human beings leading it. Surely the church has these human fingerprints all over it. Maybe it wasn't God's idea after all. Maybe a few people with similar backgrounds got together one day a long time ago and figured out that, hey, we like the same things. You like singing. I like singing. You like listening to messages. I like listening to messages. Let's start a church. And then it's just been going on ever since. Just like, you know, starting, you, you know, you like bowling, I like bowling, so we start a bowling league. Is that how the church got started? And maybe the skeptics got it right, that the church is just a creation of the early fathers, begun as a means of control, a means of power over people. And again, listen, I, I, at some level, I get it. There are so many human fingerprints over the church, and yes, a lot of those fingerprints are dirty. But again, if we scrape back to the foundation, what does the Bible say about the origins of the church? Again, let's go back to our anchor, Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to begin in verse 19. And let me give you just a little context so we can understand what's happening. Paul is in the middle of outlining a prayer that he prays for the Ephesians, actually the first of several prayers. And he's describing the inheritance that's going to await every believer and talking about this incomparably great power that they're going to receive. Now let's pick it up in verse 19 in the middle there. This power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his, Jesus's feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, what does this say? God exalted Jesus to a place of highest authority. Presidents, chancellors, Supreme Court justices, military generals, angels, demons, doesn't matter. Whoever wins this election, Jesus occupies a position of higher authority. Jesus went as low as any man could go in the humiliation of the cross. And God the Father then, when he raised him and he ascended, the last thing that's a part of our gospel message, God placed him in a position high above, not just a little bit above, but far above every authority. 
And what about popes and cardinals and bishops and pastors and elders and leaders of denominations? God appointed Jesus to be head of the church. And that church is not complete without a body. And who is the body? Well, it's you and me. It's individual Christians who, uh, they're attached to Jesus like a body is attached to a head. Now, in most circumstances, it's a good thing when the body is attached to a head. It tends not to be so good when it's not. And as our head, Jesus' life flows into us, animating and empowering us, making us spiritually alive. The church thus stakes its very origin based on this scripture in the heart of God. It's his idea. No, despite how human fingerprints are on it, it's his idea. And every member of the Trinity Every member of the triune God is engaged. We already discovered the Spirit sealing and placing us into his body. Here we see the Father installing Jesus as the head of the church. And Jesus then leads his body, and Paul can't quite contain himself. Paul can't quite find even the language to contain it. He says he's leading his body to fill everything in every way. <laughs> what can you add to that? This means that Jesus is leading his church today to extend his kingdom. This means the message of his resurrection will be taken to every crevice of the world. It will be pushed from the heartland to the coastlands. It will be pushed from the middle of the world to the smallest island until the harvest of souls is complete. Then God will reunite heaven and earth and bring all things, all reality under the leadership of his son. You back up a few verses and that's in Ephesians 1 verse 11. So let's sum up what we've learned and then draw a few applications out. What is the church we asked? The local church is a community gathered around Jesus by his word. Who is included in the church? Every believer in Jesus who's been sealed by the Spirit. Whose idea was the church? It originates in the heart of the triune God. So what difference does it make? How do these truths interface with the decisions and the trajectory of my life? Here's the first, applica applica first application. A commitment to Jesus is a commitment to his church. A commitment to Jesus is a commitment to his church. The church is no mere rotary club, no mere volunteer organization. The church is God's idea and it is glorious and it is beautiful and you are already a part of it spiritually if you are a believer. And it is God's will that you reflect that in committing to a local and visible body. Now, it could be here, but I'm not suggesting this morning it has to be here, but it needs to be somewhere that you commit to a local and visible body. Pastor Tabidi Anobiway, that is his last name, he's from the Caribbean, says we must give up our idea that the Christian life is private 
and individual. We must give up our idea that the Christian life is private and individual. And we must give up the idea that we can turn the church, turn the church into whatever suits us, whatever we want. You know, the Israelites did this way back in the ancient days of the kings. The Israelites did this when they worshiped God on what was called the high places. Did you ever wonder the meaning of that? King after king after king was condemned for, even good kings were, were they scored low on that part of their report card for allowing worship to take place in the high places. Well, as I understand it, part of what this means is that, for example, the king of Israel, after Israel and Judah split, and Jerusalem, which is where God commanded the sacrifices to be made, in this time of God's era and working, sacrifices could only be made in one place, in Jerusalem, but that was far, that was Judah. And the king of Israel's, the kings of Israel said, hey, if people worship down there in Judah, their allegiance and their loyalty and affection might be swayed. And so here's what I'm going to do. We're going to create some new worship sites here in Bethel and here in Gilgal. And I'll even make you these beautiful uh, uh, images, these bulls, Yahweh as a bull, these altars. And you can go worship there. It's far more convenient. Oh, don't worry about the second commandment about, you know, not uh, making any graven images. We're not going to worry about that. This is very convenient. You don't have to travel all the way to Jerusalem. You can go to Bethel. You can go to Gilgal. You can worship Yahweh. You can worship Yahweh there. You can have your worship and eat it too. It's very convenient. Certainly Yahweh wouldn't mind. And yet the writers said that this grieved God heart, grieved God's heart, and it earned the condemnation of the prophets. You see, the reason is because when we try to define church around what suits us and what pleases us, we invariably make it self-serving. <laughs> we make it about us. And that's why we want to urge you to keep coming back. It's one reason why we're doing this series, so that we can not ignore God's pattern for the church, for worship, for gathering, for fellowship, for the breaking of bread, for the proclamation of his word, for the, the, the common mission we, cha we share, to define the pattern of the church. We don't get to make that up. But we go to God's word, the foundation, to understand it. And we submit then as the people of God. We submit to what the scriptures teach us about the church. This is worship that is pleasing to God. Here's a second application. And that is to love the church. To love the church. You cannot separate Jesus and his church. You can't say as it is, so, it is said so cleverly today. I love Jesus, I just hate his church. It doesn't add up, folks. It does not please God. I love Jesus, but I just, I hate the Christians. It doesn't add up, friends. It does not add up. You don't have this option. It's Christ and his people. As a matter of fact, Jesus and his church are not just attached at the hip. They are attached at the neck. 
And that is the way the Father designed it. Carrie Newhoff, who writes extensively about the church and the future of the church, he noted this. He said, in fact, most of the New Testament is not about the teachings of Jesus. It's about the work of the church that Jesus initiated and ordained. And yet when we look around, we see the church, what do we see? We see weakness, we see impotence, we see dirty fingerprints all over it, and we wonder, God, isn't there some other way? Isn't there some other medium to reflect your glory? And it's easy to despair. I mean, God, can't you just, couldn't you have just spoken directly or used something else? Couldn't you have circumvented human beings that sin and leaders that sin? Again, Newhoff says, so wisely, the fact that Christ used flawed people to accomplish his work on earth is actually a sign of his grace, not of his absence. The church gives the world a front row seat to the grace of God. You see, doesn't that give you hope? You see, it is not primarily about you and me. You and me will not be the heroes of this story. This story, this unfolding story that Paul talked about there in Ephesians 1 of Jesus filling everything in every way. No other adjectives to describe it. He's doing that. And you and me will not be the heroes of the story. He will. He will be the hero of the story. God saves us, though we don't deserve it. And God uses us, though we don't deserve it. And that's why we can keep getting back up again when we feel like he's done with me. This is when we can get back up again when we feel like that was one failure too many. Because it's not about us. It's about him and his grace. The church is God's idea. And the church is God's continued story of grace that was on full display at the cross. And it's working powerfully within the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your scriptures. Thank you for your word. It is our foundation. It is our foundation. And we thank you for it. Certainly, Father, you've called and are calling your church together and you are summoning your people and you are gathering us in response to what you say to us, how you speak to us. Thank you for its power. Thank you for its relevance. Thank you for the church, Father. So, in so many ways, Father, so human and yet so filled with grace and so much opportunity to reflect the grace that's working in our lives, Father, to the praise of your glory. Father, to the praise of your glory. 
lead us through this series as we learn and discover about this beautiful thing called the church. May our hearts be ready. May our hearts be open. May our hearts learn from you. Father, may our hearts learn from you. And we pray you continue to lead us now. Thank you for this gathering inside today. Thank you for everyone who is able to come. Thank you for those watching online. We trust that you'll continue to lead us as a church, Father. Lead us by grace, using weak people like me, weak people like us, to extend the kingdom of God all over the world. It's in Jesus' name for his glory we pray. Amen. 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 Hey, we made it. We made it back inside. We made it through a service. A little bit of history here being made today. Thank you for being a part of it. Hey, as we go, um, just a couple of things to keep in mind here. Again, put your mask back on, please, as you're exiting. You're free to stick around and fellowship. We encourage you to fellowship. You can fellowship inside, you can fellowship outside, you can go to the lobby, you can go to the fellowship hall, you can go outside, I encourage you to connect with one another. And again, just but encourage you while you're inside to please to wear, wear your mask. All right, let's stand for a final blessing. May our love abound, may our love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight that we may be able to discern what is best and that we may, we may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Amen. Oh, God bless you. Go, go in peace.